Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast, coming to you after 24 tumultuous hours in which tanks and troops rolled across the Russia-Ukraine border in what Vladimir Putin calls a military operation to denazify his neighbours, what many more around the world are calling an invasion. My name is Jared Watt. I am the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And before I go a step further, a reminder that this is a developing story and you'll get the latest updates 24 hours a day at our website, smp.com. It was only three weeks ago we were discussing just what was in the detail of the joint statement signed by Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi Jinping at their face-to-face meeting in Beijing on the sideline of the Winter Olympics. This was the meeting where both leaders declared their nations were in a relationship that had no limits. This week, we're witnessing just some of what that means. On Tuesday this week, China's spokesperson for the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, Wang Wenbin, had this to say about Russia's military buildup on the Ukrainian border. China once again calls on all parties to exercise restraint recognize the importance of implementing the principle of indivisibility of security and ease the situation and resolve differences through dialogue and negotiation. Then, on what was Thursday morning Hong Kong time, at the United Nations Security Council in New York, China's ambassador Zhang Jun had this to say. The situation in Ukraine is at a critical juncture. China has been paying close attention to the situation. In the current context, all parties concerned should exercise restraint and avoid the further escalation of tensions. We believe that the door to a peaceful solution to the Ukraine issue is not fully shut, nor should it be. If China was paying close attention to the situation, it appears to have missed, or ignored, the convoys of tanks and troops streaming into Ukraine and the cruise missiles roaring overhead. Now keep in mind, I'm speaking to you on Friday morning, Hong Kong time. Sometime later today, a significant resolution is being put forward at the UN Security Council in New York, condemning Russia's actions and calling for the immediate withdrawal of forces. All eyes will be on whether China abstains from voting or exercises its veto. And there's also going to be a lot of attention on another nuclear power who shares a deep relationship with Russia, the nation of India, and how they vote on this resolution as well. But right now, I'm going to take you to Brussels, Beijing and Taiwan to hear the reactions to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How does China walk this diplomatic tightrope with the European Union? How does its rejections of independence movements and interference in sovereign states on its side of the world play with the EU now? Russia clearly now openly declared itself as a revisionist power. And that is, I think, a significant challenge for China. Is it really going to continue supporting 
Russia's revisionist ambitions. And what of Taiwan? I'm going to speak to an expert in the geopolitics of the US-China-Taiwan relationship about the ramifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If China were to launch an attack against Taiwan, then that means that China will be foregoing the additional diplomatic flexibility created by the Ukraine crisis and draw all the Western pressure and potentially military response onto itself while letting Russia have a freer time taking over Ukraine. Because on this side of the world, the discussion is much less about what to do about Russia moving on Ukraine as it is about what China will do now that Russia has made its move. Let's get to it. Two members of the South China Morning Post newsroom who've had very busy days today are Finbar Birmingham in Brussels and Marjun in Beijing. Hello to you both. Marjun, Western media headlines are all about Russia military action into Ukraine, but what are you seeing on China's state media right now? I would say basically the state media is trying to downplay this entire controversy around Ukraine because China does not see itself as a direct relevant party. So as I go through the People's Daily today, and I only found this only bit about the Ukraine situation at the bottom of the third page, but it's only because the uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying had made some comment on the situation, but not much about what's actually going on on the ground. And is there any reflection on on social media? We know state media is tightly controlled, but social media quite often, you know, gets off the chain a bit for a while until it's reined back in. Actually, people are paying a lot of attention on social media. Everybody's talking about it. They are sharing different uh, non-official media's news about what's going on on the ground. Um, you know, people share news about shocks to stock market. People sort of have their uh, kind of amateur takes on the world itself. So I would say basically the people here are paying a lot of attention to the war scenario in Ukraine. Uh, but obviously the Chinese government is trying to downplay it. Indeed. Now, Finbar Birmingham, this action kicked off while we were watching our screens here on this side of the world. And of course, on your side of the world, it kind of, it happened during the night. What's going on in in Europe from where you are in Brussels right now? What's been the response? There's a bit of a surreal mood in town this morning. Uh, This is the heart of the European Union and there's essentially a fresh conflict on European soil. This has been the message that's been going out from diplomats, officials, journalists. There's been a scramble among the Brussels press corps to get accredited for a European Council meeting tonight. That's when you get the 27 leaders of the European Union nations meeting to finalise new sanctions, deep sanctions on Russia for what is seen in Europe now as a full-on invasion is what the United States has been warning for, for weeks now. There's a sense that maybe Europe was a wee bit naive, that it didn't heed these warnings and that they sort of downplayed the threat. Ukraine also downplayed the threat. Maybe it was an effort to limit any panic. But here we are. Uh, this is the this is the state of affairs. NATO has met in Brussels this morning. European Commission President von der Leyen will meet with the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg this afternoon. There's an emergency meeting of the European Parliament leaders, an emergency meeting of the G7, an emergency meeting of the European Council. We've been told that if this scenario was to arise, 
what is seen as a military invasion, then we would see the mother of all sanctions package. This is what everybody's waiting for in Brussels today. What will the European Union do? There are some options on the table. The, the sanctions that were announced, we are speaking on Thursday, the sanctions that were announced on Tuesday were relatively light touch. They touched some banks, they touched some oligarchs, and they hit the members of the Duma, which is the Russian parliament that voted for the recognition of those breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Will they kick Russia off the SWIFT network? This is the international banking framework by which people and banks do international transactions. That would be really interesting to watch. And a week ago, I would have told you absolutely no way. This morning, we've had three foreign ministers from the Baltic nations, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, granted the most hawkish nations in the European Union on Russia. They share a border with Russia. They're very worried about Russian aggression as, as they might be this morning. They're calling for SWIFT to be revoked from Russian banks. That would be a really stern option to take. Vera Yourova, who is a commissioner, a vice president in the European Commission, gave an interview to the Czech media this morning in which she called for Vladimir Putin to be sanctioned. Talk about taking it to the next level. If they sanction Putin, if they freeze his assets in Europe, if they ban him from traveling in Europe, I mean, that's... You know, that's that, that's something people w- would really think that the Europeans generally wouldn't have the stomach for. Let's see what happens. Uh, diplomats are meeting on this at the moment. The leaders are expected to finalise whatever is agreed tonight. We're getting briefed this afternoon. Hopefully we learn a little bit more. But just to say there's a state of shock here, despite the forewarning, there's a very surreal atmosphere in the city. And everybody's watching very closely to see What's the reaction in Europe? But they're also watching China. What's Beijing saying about this? As my June said, you know, there's certainly at the UN Security Council overnight, there was no condemnation of the Russian aggression from, from the Chinese ambassador. That's been noted in Europe. There is a sense, Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, said that the other day, there's no way that the Chinese can look the other way if Russia carries through with this aggression and expect European-China relations to stay the same. So... Everybody's watching everything, I suppose, is the, <laughs> is the short answer. And you mentioned Vladimir Putin and the idea of him travelling and how sanctions would change all of that. Of course, the last place he travelled to was Beijing to meet with Xi Jinping. And now we're kind of seeing what went on in that meeting, or at least what was agreed to. Not only was it the massive gas deal that sends a lot of Russian gas to China, We saw a report today that China has announced it's taking all of the wheat exports from Russia almost as if they anticipated sanctions coming on this move. Madhuri, there's been discussion that Beijing has been too quiet or very quiet about all of this in the lead-up. From your position in Beijing, are you seeing any change in Beijing's position? Is there any change in the dialogue or the narrative I definitely see some minor change in uh, Beijing's narrative if we compare to what Minister Wang Yi was saying during the Munich Security Conference. During that conference, which took place last Saturday, he was calling for, you know, adherence to the Minsk Agreement, which obviously Russia pronounced dead as uh, Russia sent troops across the border. And so after the war broke out, Chinese officials have obviously stopped calling for adherence to the Minsk Agreement because right now, any reiterance of the Minsk 
agreement would be a slap in the face of Putin. Um, so they stopped saying this. I attended the uh, press conference of the foreign ministry in Beijing yesterday and today and the day before yesterday. So obviously on the first day, the spokesman wanted to just sort of say nothing except for what the ambassador to the UN Security Council has been saying, which is oh, China called for constraints of all parties. China urged all parties to re remain constrained and uh, return to the channel of dialogue. But after two days, I think China has sort of taken a clearer position, which I would call somewhat leaning towards Russia, but without taking a clear role which is supportive to Russia's aggression. So we see languages like this during the phone call between uh, Wang Yi and Blinken. Uh, Wang Yi says something like, for instance, the Ukraine situation has turned into this stage because uh, there was a lack of full implementation of the Minsk agreement. The same talking points actually appeared on the Russian side before the invasion because they were blaming the Ukraine side for not fully implementing the Minsk agreement, which includes articles like uh, conducting dialogues with the representatives in Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, which uh, Ukraine did not do. Uh, so we do see the Russians talking points landing on the China's talking points right now, but China has so far definitely resisted either condemning Russia or just taking a clear position of supporting Russia. So an hour ago, I was in uh, another uh, daily press conference of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So that, that lasted for almost an hour. But that shows a somewhat clearer position by China as the war sort of entered its second or third day. And basically, China is pointing a finger at, for instance, U.S. selling arms or sending ammunition uh, to Ukraine and saying that escalated tensions. It also said security has to be comprehensive, collaborative, which also happened to come from uh, Russia's talking point. For instance, the spokeswoman Hua Chenying sort of corrected the reporter when a reporter phrased Russia's aggression as invasion. And of course, when uh, whenever asked about Western sanctions, China would say it's opposed to a sort of unilateral or illegal sanctions because China's position is it does not think sanctions could solve anything. But China is uh, right now is caught in a very bizarre and awkward uh, position, obviously, because like you mentioned, Putin visited China at the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics. He met Xi Jinping. And of course, right now, the entire world are asking questions like, uh, what was agreed upon? Did she know? Um, so I think from today's press conference, it's pretty clear that China is trying to actually deny the notion that China was aware of Russia's plan. Uh, for instance, the spokeswoman said things like, uh, Russia is an independent country that makes its own decision based on its interest. And definitely those decisions did not need to be clear by China or any other countries before they are made. But of course, after saying this, she immediately returned to what about what the U.S. did to Ukraine? What about the escalation on the other part? To be fair, none of those clear accusations or criticism uh, being said by the Chinese side was pointed at Russia. And that was what is clear to me. Madrin, of course, I'd love to hear more detail about the Hua Chanying press conference today because here was a tad spicier than normal. But Finba, I know you've probably got a question concerning the EU and this agreement 
between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Yeah, I'm just wondering what this sort of um, viewpoint is in Beijing, because the debate that seems to be happening in Europe and probably in the US, other Western nations, is whether China maybe has some some buyer's remorse on this issue. I saw somebody suggesting that perhaps Putin had laid a trap <laughs> for the Chinese in sort of allowing them to walk into this uh, somewhat of a, of a pact or at least an agreement. And then Putin's obviously gone further than many people thought he would. I mean, my sense of it was that this was not an agreement that was negotiated overnight, that there was some sort of political capital invested in this, there was time invested in it. So I I don't know how much I buy that idea that China is sort of observing this with great shock or uh, maybe my June can develop that. Is there any suggestion from your reporting or your your conversations that China is kind of having second thoughts on what it's agreed with? I'm more on the side uh, that Putin has laid a trap <laughs> for China. And I think, for instance, the joint communique, that, that should be something that has been prepared for a long time. And if we look at the structure of that communique, it's addressed uh, things like uh, human rights, uh, democracy, and all that. Those were some of the China's key concerns uh, for sort of international image, because right now, of course, it sounds like it's very distant. But I think to Beijing, that was at the top of uh, Beijing's mind when they prepared that joint statement was the U.S. Democracy Summit, um, which also uh, invited Taiwan and all that. Also, secondly, I think China was also expecting Indo-Pacific strategy that would be soon be published by the U.S. And I think it might make sense for China, as it has done so in the past two to three years, that as tensions with the U.S. escalated, it thinks that maybe closer ties to Russia could give Beijing a more bargaining chips. But I definitely think that China would fully understand that it would be put into a complete diplomatic dilemma if the war really breaks out between Ukraine and Russia. And of course, that's because China has pretty good ties with Ukraine. And uh, not to mention China is trying to manage uh, the tensions and the damage of the China-EU ties caused by the exchange of sanctions over Xinjiang. And that's why I think EU and China are preparing for a China-EU summit in the spring. And of course, I need to mention another thing too, which is the 50th anniversary of Nixon's visit to China. The spokesperson of China's ministry has said many times that they are holding some events to commemorate that event. And if you look at the readout of the phone call between Wang Yi and Blinken, it's actually separated into two parts. One part is solely on US-China relations, and the second part was on issue, including Ukraine and North Korea. So I do think that this entire thing would put Beijing in a very awkward position or dilemma. And I pretty much doubt that if Beijing was completely aware of Russia's plan, it would still go ahead signing that joint statement on Feb 4th. And of course, we remember clauses on the joint statement, including opposition to enlargement of NATO and the fact that you know China supports and sympathizes with Russia's proposal of security talks with EU and the US. So that's my thoughts. I I definitely am on the side that Putin sort of laid a trap for Beijing. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I wonder whether we'll see any more of this um, economic support that, that I think Jared mentioned, the opening of the Chinese market to Russian wheat on the morning in which it's anticipated that there's going to be sanctions on Russia. So, I mean, people here will be really watching closely for that. Is China going to offer a sort of economic buffer zone for Russia to try and absorb some of the economic impact of the sanctions, which will no doubt come in thick and fast? I know you're both very busy. I do appreciate your time. We'll be watching your reports from Beijing, from Brussels on SNP.com, coming thick and fast over these next 24 hours, over the next coming weekend. Thank you very much for your time, both of you. Thanks very much, Jared. Hey, it's Jasmine from the podcast team. Our latest Listening Post newsletter is out, and this week we're finding podcasts for all the parents out there wondering, is there something they can listen to with their kids? If you've got a curious kid asking, why is the sky blue or why does the wind blow? We've got the perfect podcast that can help answer these simple questions with surprisingly complex answers. And if you want to engage your kids with a bit more imagination, we're reviewing a podcast that's kind of like the radio plays of the old days. There's stories about wizards and aliens and great voice actors make these stories come alive. Plus, if you're stuck inside thinking, maybe now is the time to get back to learning Cantonese, I have found a podcast that goes beyond just Ngoi, Ido, and Maidan. That's the Listening Post newsletter. Subscribe at scmp.com slash newsletter or hit the link in the description. Dr. Stefan Auer is an Associate Professor in European Studies at the University of Hong Kong. Dr. Auer, we're speaking on the day as... The UN sat in session. The tanks and missiles were moving towards the Ukraine. How do events in Ukraine today change the Sino-Russian relationship? That's right. So Russia has been at war with Ukraine for the last eight years. But what is new is that Putin openly declared a war against Ukraine. So the strategy that has dominated Russia's approach to, to Ukraine was kind of deniable intervention, that he was always in denial about it, even though everyone knew that Russians were directly involved. This is an open war. This is an open confrontation, and it has the potential to change the international order as we know it. It has huge implications for the relationship between Russia and China. At the basic level, you could just say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So here we have China in confrontation with the United States, supporting Russia in in this adventure. And yet it is way more complicated than that because China has always been opposed to secessionist movements. And there the conflict basically escalated the way it has by Putin's Russia recognizing these illegitimate republics as separate entities And that is the pretext he used to openly invade Ukraine. So this is putting China into an exceedingly awkward uh, position because it is de facto supporting a major power, Russia, in its support for separatist movements. And that is against a longstanding pragmatic position of China that dreads the prospect of separatism. It's interesting you say that because we had Chinese ambassadors speaking pretty much as the tanks were rolling across the border in Belarus, you know, and the cruise missile launchers were being uh, set to active. 
We've heard consistently about China's position on the rules-based order. How might this play out? How does China spin this, for want of a better word? The entire constellation is utterly bizarre, absurd. Like, I think it is quite significant that Putin gave this major speech exactly at the time when the UN Security Council was taking place. And when you listen to the speech, he talks a lot about justice and a just international order. He says that the truth and, and justice is on the side of, of Russia, right? But he is obviously defying the existing order. He obviously has contempt uh, for the UN, uh, you know, launching this major open offensive war, invasion, at the time of the UN Security Council meeting. So again, I think for China, it is an exceedingly awkward constellation because on the whole, my, my sense is that China attempts to be pragmatic and China does not easily or likely openly defy the rules the way Putin has just done. And, and so that is a very awkward alliance that is emerging there. It is also a very unequal alliance. The size of China's economy dwarfs Russia's economy, and Russia is going to be seriously hit uh, by sanctions. So in that relationship, Russia will always be a junior partner. And I also think that the general kind of suspicion and hostility of Russian elites towards China will also put limits on that uh, strange alliance. So we are seeing a major realignment of forces. We are seeing also a major, major crisis of the existing international order. It's way too soon to kind of speculate about the outcome. But as for Russia-China relationship, I think there are, there are huge question marks over it. Dr. Al, you mentioned before about 2014, you have published extensive research about that year, what went on. One of the things you declared was that it was the end of the soft power paradigm. Clearly, when the rockets are flying and the, and the tanks are rolling, the soft power is finished. This is all about the very spiky, sharp, hard power. What can we learn from this for how Xi Jinping might pursue future foreign policy? Is there anything we can extrapolate from this? Well, it's not for me to advise Xi Jinping on his foreign policy, but I'm happy to comment on the response of uh, West Europeans in particular to the takeover of Crimea. When I argued that West European political elites were delusional, thinking that they can contain Russia with uh, what scholars describe as soft power, you know, a bit of sanctions. The sanctions were half-hearted because the project of uh, Nord Stream 2 actually started a year after the invasion of Crimea. It was just now uh, suspended, basically de facto cancelled by the German government. But the entire approach that has defined German foreign policy and even the EU foreign policy, that you can diffuse conflict in the world through trade, that entire approach has collapsed right now. There is no way anymore to defend it. So Germans recall their experience from the Cold War, 1970s, 1980s, where they believed that they diffused the Cold War tension through trade. So the, the slogan is Wandel durch Handel, that is, we will, uh, you know, transform the world through free trade, and through free trade we will turn, you know, communist Soviet Union into 
something more liberal. And, and today that logic implies that through trade, you will turn those authoritarian regimes into something more conducive to a peaceful international order. While well, this entire approach has collapsed, there is no longer, to my mind, it is no longer possible to pretend that you can have security in Europe with Russia. This is the defining moment in, in, in that sense, that the consensus across political parties in Germany and across Western Europe was that you have to work with Russia to maintain security in Europe. Uh, what we have now is a situation where Europeans have to defend their security against Russia. Russia clearly now openly declared itself as a revisionist power. And that is, I think, a significant challenge for China. Is it really going to continue supporting Russia's revisionist ambitions? It will be an interesting uh, space to watch. Dr. Auer, as I've spoken to you now, I've just received a tweet that says that China has announced that it's opened up the shipments of wheat from all across Russia, basically following the line, as we heard from that meeting of Xi and Putin at the Olympics, this relationship with no limits. Can I just direct you to the fact that here we are in February in 2022, 50 years ago, historians said that Nixon played the, quote, China card in forming an alliance against the USSR. Has Putin managed to play the China card against the US with this relationship and this agreement with Xi Jinping? It's an excellent question, and I think it's too early to say. I'm still skeptical about the possibility of a, of a really close alliance between uh, Russia and China. If the sanctions against Russia are going to be as severe as I expect them to be, then I don't think that China can uh, basically play the role that West Europeans, that uh, US played in terms of providing Russian economy with financial uh, resources like banking, etc., but also technology, right, high-tech technology that Russia will no longer have access to. And of course, China today has as many of those goods, many of those goodies that it can offer Russia, but I don't think it will be a substitute for the relationship that Russia has had. I mean, most of the trade uh, still happens with Western Europe, with Germany. So I, I don't see that China can play that role. Yeah, I am doubtful whether that rationale of the enemy, of uh, my enemy is my friend, uh, will be sufficient for medium-long term uh, relationship between China and, and Russia to remain strong. But all is in the open. We don't know the future. This is definitely a very significant day for the international order and a very threatening day for peace in Europe, in the world. Dr. Stefan, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Wenti Sung is an academic working at the Australian National University in Canberra. He's a specialist in US-China-Taiwan relations and, as you can probably guess, there's very good reason why I'm speaking to him this afternoon. Wenti Sung, hello, how are you? Good, thanks, Sheriff, for having me on. Can I just ask you, from your experience, your discussions, various think tanks, how does China view Russia? And I mean, beyond the optics of Xi Jinping meeting with Vladimir Putin at the Winter Olympics, how is Russia perceived by the elites of Beijing? I think China and Russia have a kind of a complicated relationship because 
Russia is kind of like insurance that China buys for rainy days, in a way. I like to think about it in terms of China's complicated Russia choice, as in China sometimes had to juggle between whether to prioritize relationship with the West or with Russia. And in a way, I think for many audience, Australia and many other countries, for example, they also talk about China choice. It's also the title of a book that Australian professor Hugh White used to write about. Essentially, for many countries, they juggle between security benefits from relationship with the U.S. and uh, economic benefits from relationship with China. That's, of course, changed a bit recently. But yeah, that type of balancing act is still active to various extent today for many countries. And similarly, China also has the Russia choice to make as well, because Russia is a partner in international diplomatic venues. So whenever, let's say, U.S. or Western country try to make comments or even critiques about China's domestic governance issues, for example, uh, Russia and China often partners together, be it vetoing resolutions, be it taking a united front in terms of international uh, messaging. In that sense, Russia is a partner that's used for China, usually for defensive purposes in a way. But when it comes to actually growing China's power and prestige, however, Russia can sometimes be a potential liability because we do know that, after all, Russia is a, relatively speaking, major power, but not quite as accepted in a Western-oriented international polite society, in a way. And when things are going well, China will much rather prioritize economic opportunity with the West as well as Western approval and international prestige that comes from better relationship with leading powers in international society, many of which are Western countries. And so China has that that sort of um, complex in terms of how to balance relations with Russia and the West. That's diplomatic speaking. In terms of security, however, Russia and China relationship are also not quite as ironclad in a way because they do share a long border together. And they are both countries that seem to feel a strong sense of geopolitical insecurity. Reasons are are kind of straightforward. Russia has the longest land border in the world. China has the most number of countries that it shares land borders with in the world. We also know that Russia is concerned about its Russian Far East in Siberia, Vladivostok, areas like that which has strong Chinese economic presence. And Russia is always worried about what the demographic movements, e.g. Chinese immigration into those areas, will someday lead to political, if not territorial, implication for Russian control over that part of the world, which are a lot closer to Beijing than they are to Moscow. So in that sense, there are also potential security concerns to each other as well. So oftentimes when Western pressure against China or Russia is strong, you see these two kind of find ways to work together more. However, when Western attention is diverted elsewhere, e.g. in the Middle East during the long war on terror, for example, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and what have you, then you see China tend to prioritize working with the West more so than arguably more so than working on Russia per se. So it's complicated, to to put it very briefly. It's complicated between China and Russia. So Beijing has consistently criticised 
American military adventurism. It's always advertised the fact that China will never interfere in another nation's sovereignty. It's all about soft power, the belted road, whereas the US will send drones, you know, <laughs> missiles, bombers. But today's action, as Russia launched a military attack while it was chairing the UN Security Council meeting, really just throws that in Beijing's face, surely. Yeah, uh, I think um, it's obviously a difficult situation for Beijing. And like I said, China is always trying to find a balancing act between Russia and the West as well. And I think at this point, given how difficult it is to avoid taking a side at this moment for China, China may be trying to find ways to sort of put off for as long as it can in a way, because if we think about it, if Russia succeeds in making territorial gains in at Ukraine expense, China will be at risk of being seen as a potential enabler of Russian designs there. Even though, if we think about it, if Russia succeeds in expanding its power and territory, it doesn't really yield any clear visible benefit to Beijing. And we talk about how uh, Russia can also be a potential security concern to Beijing as well. So in that sense, the strengthening of a potential security concern is not necessarily something that's in Beijing's benefit either. And so at this point, it's like there's not much for Beijing to gain from greater Russian success there. And there's a lot for Beijing to lose if Russia succeeds. Meanwhile, Beijing can't really be seen to completely cut itself off from Russia as well, because Beijing still needs Russia when rainy day comes, e.g. when U.S. is getting back to full uh, dedication on Indo-Pacific theaters rivalry vis-a-vis China. So Beijing is really feeling, in my, in my view at least, Beijing is really feeling a little bit stuck between the two. So that may explain also why we see various kind of delaying messaging from China's foreign ministry apparatus at this moment. Well, let me turn to the the subject, the island known as the rebel province by mainland China, Taiwan. Many opinionists, many uh, hot take experts have all thrown in references to Taiwan in this build-up to what we've seen happen in Ukraine this week. Wen Song, what are your contacts telling you? What are your colleagues talking about in terms of mainland China's aspirations to bring Taiwan into the one China fold? Right. That's uh, that's certainly a broad question. So I, I guess you can look at it in long term and short term. A long term is obvious that China has always sought to sort unification with Taiwan. That that's not really new. And Taiwan as a result has been living under the shadow of uh, potential Chinese military action against Taiwan in a coercive uh, unification scenario. Everything's really a quarter century ago. If you go back to, let's say, the 1996, when Taiwan had its first direct presidential election, for example, with all implication for the sense of imagined community and the sense of evolving Taiwanese national identity and all that. So that's a longer-term picture. Uh, if we zoom in on the shorter term, one thing that we hear many Taiwan hands, uh, scholars, think tankers, even some official talk about 
there's a possibility of a uh, simultaneous Chinese military adventurism in Taiwan Strait during uh, this Russian military action against Ukraine. The logic is obvious that perhaps if Russian invades Ukraine, then the West attention and resources will be divided and will be distracted and move away from the Indo-Pacific theater and towards Eastern Europe. And maybe that not only gives Beijing a freer hand, but may also think, oh, there is a window opportunity. Maybe you can pursue military option on Taiwan on the cheap, cheaper at least than it usually is. My personal take on this has always been that threat perception may be a little overblown. I think the logic is straightforward in that if we assume, uh, like I do, that Russia and China relationship are one of a uneasy partnership, then it follows that there is inherently going to be, to some degree, a zero-sum game relationship in terms of what kind of attention or pressure Russia and China get from the West. They have terms for this in, in Chinese CCP speak, 主要矛盾 and 次要矛盾, which means um, which one is the primary focus of Western pressure and Western uh, resources, so to speak. So if Russian military invasion of Ukraine escalates, then presumably for a short time, at least for foreseeable future to come, Russia will be primary focus for Western attention and resources, which will mean, yes, China gets some free hand and greater diplomatic and strategic flexibility in its own neighborhood. Now, that sounds like at least a positive for Beijing for a little while, at least. If Beijing, however, were to take this Ukraine crisis opportunity and then to decide its own military action against Taiwan, then that will draw Western attention back to China again. Because China, after all, is the second strongest power in the international system, and Russia being the number 11th GDP economy in the world. So if the West has to choose, then China will be a greater concern than Russia. And it follows that Taiwan will be a greater concern than Ukraine as well. So if China were to launch this attack against Taiwan, then that means that China will be foregoing the additional diplomatic flexibility created by the Ukraine crisis and draw all the Western pressure and potentially military response onto itself while letting Russia have a freer time taking over Ukraine. While I assume people don't even do it for their best buddies, so it's hard to imagine why China want to do it for an uneasy partner. So that, that's certainly how I look at it. And, and if you look at public opinion poll surveys in Taiwan, I think just a few days ago, there was a survey in Taiwan when the Taiwanese public were asked about what do they think about the likelihood of a Chinese attack against Taiwan during an ongoing Ukrainian crisis. And you see from that survey, I think something like 62% or so of Taiwanese member of public also think that uh, the possibility of a Chinese attack against Taiwan is unlikely. So that, that's roughly the sentiment at, at this moment. That is a fascinating perspective. And I dare say we'll be speaking again very soon. Wang Tae-sun, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. Remember, there's a significant moment coming up at the United Nations Security Council later today, and we'll be reporting that at scmp.com. You'll also get all the analysis and comment throughout the weekend. And keep in mind, our video team is working overtime 
to cover both the ongoing Omicron surge here in Hong Kong, but also wading through the misinformation and fake videos to bring you accurate, credible video updates from Ukraine, as well as the protests calling for peace in Russia and across the world. And I know Twitter is awash with armchair military strategists right now, but you can always rely on Finbar Birmingham's Twitter stream to bring you incisive updates from the heart of European politics and how it relates to China. Find him at F Birmingham. That's B-E-R, not like the city. My name is Jared Watt. Thanks for listening to the China Geopolitics Podcast. Stay safe, stay socially distant, stay in touch. Until next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.